And welcome back to the Blue Corner. My name is Dennis and today I am joined by a very special guest. He is the founder and brains behind the global brand of Wimp to Warrior. He's also the uh, MMA editor of Men's Fitness Australia and he's recently been appointed the uh, president of IMAF Australia. I'm talking about none other than Richie Cranny himself. How are you? I'm good, Dennis. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm impressed with your studio, by the way. It's very cool. Um, I've been on many podcasts, and this is this is the most kit I've seen. But I knew that from our experience with you doing our production, we've been to work for so long, you'd, you'd have all the gadgets, mate. So thank you. I'm pleased to be on here. It's good to see you. It's always good to see you, and it's been a while. Um, we'll we'll start on a, on a personal level, just because obviously I I, I just recently saw it on your Facebook. Um, you know, uh, you, you, you posted a photo of yourself from nine years back. Um, and I, I will have to say it was before you started days because you're looking pretty jacked. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, you, you mentioned there that obviously you've, you've had a, a, a tough 12 months um, mentally and physically. Um, so, you know, can, can, can you go into that a little bit and let us know what, 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 what was going on? Sure. Look, I think everyone has those phases in their life. Um, it's important. I think the reason I did it is because it's, it's important for people, especially men, to talk about these things. And um, especially for someone that preaches mental health and through the Winter Warrior Program, a huge part of what we do is is giving people mental strength to to deal with their life and, and all the things that come as roadblocks and challenges in their life. So, you know, if you can do this, you can do anything. Um, and it's important... Although I don't like sharing this kind of stuff, it's important that um, they can see that someone that they might think wouldn't struggle with these kind of things, it's the coach, it's the guy that's started went to worry, you know, success, all this kind of stuff. Um, even he has problems with mental health. And, and I think everyone goes through these stages and, and um, I've, I've struggled with mental health since uh, 2005, actually. Um, I've never talked about it. But that's when I originally injured my back. Um, and I was out for two years and told I could never try and do martial arts again, and that was the darkest time in my life. Um, and that kind of always comes back. And um, the last sort of twelve months, it's it's I've had challenges um, that everything sort of compounds um, with Winter Warrior and the growth and everything like that, and trying to do as much you can for that. And then um, with IMAF and um, all the things I've been doing there, and we hosted. Um, and put on the biggest amateur event in Australian history, MMA um, event on the Gold Coast in March, and the work that went into that was insane. Um, and then I got sick. Um, I picked up whooping cough, and then it turned into pneumonia um, on both my lungs, and I got really sick. And then I was in hospital, and I was in the COVID ward, and then um, there was um, an incident where uh, I had a heart problem. But so all these things, you know, it's... It, that your health and your physical and your mental health aren't always separate. Um, your physical health has a, a huge effect on your mental health. And and I think that we tend to treat um, the physical cause, you know, whether it's an injury, whether it's a sickness. Um, but it's just a it, was a, it was a point where I had something come up on my Facebook page and it was that picture and it was me nine years ago um, when I was had my gym in Sydney and I was training all the time and I turned 40 and um, I was actually going to have another pro fight. I was talking to um, CFC and um, because my back was coming back anyway. It's a long story, but 
that picture reminded me of, of where I was. I was physically and mentally really strong at that point in my life. Um, and shortly after that, I, I came up with the idea of Winter Warrior because I wanted to give everyone else the feeling I had of I can do anything. Um, I wanted other people to experience that. And I knew training in mixed martial arts can do that because I've been doing it for 15, 20 years at that point. So that's how Winter Warrior started. Um, and, but anyway, look, it's, I, I take my – everything I do, I, I put 100% in. I can't do it any other way. I'm just not set that way. My brain doesn't work. I can't do something part-time. Um, so, and my wife's always telling me, you take too much on, you take too much on. And, you know, you, I'll be okay, you know. It's fine and you get to a point where it's not fine anymore and, you know, you struggle to get out of bed in the morning and you have dark moods and all this kind of stuff. And I've been seeing someone for a while and it's, it's fine, it's manageable, but I want other people to understand and know that it's okay to talk about it and everyone goes through these phases and, you know, I have support from my family um, and which, incidentally, is, is if someone asks me what's the most important thing that you want to achieve in life, it's to be a good dad. That's and, and husband, but that's my goal in life. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of got too caught up in I want to make my kids proud. I want to build something to, to say that they can say, my dad did that, you know, and, and that became bigger than it should be. And uh, I was kind of, I put my own health um, at risk. And also, you know, I, I, I didn't see my family a lot of the time. I was traveling all the time. I was training. I was asleep when I got home I was too tired I was burnt out I was getting ill all the time um, and this whole COVID thing has been a, an opportunity I think for a lot of people as well because we've had more time on our hands to sit back and go you know what am I doing and and is this really the end goal you know um, I wouldn't change anything if I went back in the time machine I wouldn't change a thing because every everything that's happened has, has got to got me where I am today and I'm privileged and I feel bad about complaining about things because I have a beautiful family. I live in a beautiful place in the world. I have uh, a business. I've created a business that I love. You know, I'm the president of uh, the Federation of Australia, the sport that I love. But we need to give ourselves a little bit of time sometimes, sit back and allow ourselves to, to feel and, you know, and give ourselves some time to breathe. And I didn't do that for a few years. It was I was literally living on adrenaline. And then um, when I got sick, the, after the event in March, um, I was literally, I was out for almost three months. So, um, yeah, that pitch come up and I, I basically said in the post that um, I've set myself a goal. I teach people goals all the time and it's, it's the same thing, you know, we've got to practice what we preach, look after ourselves. So I said my 50th is in April. So it was sort of nine, nine months away or whatever to my 50th. And I want to be physically and mentally where I was when I turned 40. And that's the goal. And, and I wanted to put that out there and tell people that I've got a goal and I'm going to set it. And so many people reached out to me, you know, Coach, I'm, I'd love to do it with you. Let's do it online. And um, thank you for posting. Someone from Black Dog messaged me saying thank you for, for posting it because that means a lot from someone that, that um, has a following. So it's, it was a selfish thing, but also, you know, from a coaching point of view, it's good to, to let people know that, it's okay and we should talk about it and reach out and it's the are you okay kind of thing. So, yeah. Now, were you ever worried, like laid up, uh, as you say, in the COVID wa uh, ward with pneumonia? Were you at all worried that you had uh, COVID-19? I was. I mean, I didn't know I had pneumonia at the time. I was in there because they thought I had COVID. 
So I got sick. I was in New Zealand for the UFC. I was covering that and I was over there for IMAF. And then um, I remember I was I was at City Kickboxing with Eugene and the Winter Row guys and it was the, the Monday morning and I, I just I couldn't stop coughing. And I and I thought, oh, this, you know, it's okay. It's just a cough. Come back. And this is before the whole COVID started. This was sort of late February. Um, and then I just worked through and then I was getting ready for the IMAF Oceana. Um, we had 10 countries come in and we were so lucky because it's just before the lockdown happened, you know. Um, we had 85 athletes. We had a really big Australian team and put this huge event on. Um, and I just kind of pushed through. But I was started getting sicker and sicker. Um, and then um, all the COVID stuff started coming out and I was like, oh, shit. So I better get tested because I've been with all these people and I was petrified that they'd come back and say, you're positive because then I'd been with all these athletes from all around the world and I thought, this is just a nightmare. And I was so stressed about it. So I went and got tested um, and it came back negative. And I was like, okay, that's great. So I carried on, and, but I was still sick and I didn't know I had pneumonia and I didn't know I had whooping cough. And this is the thing, you know, I just pushed through. Um, and then I got really sick and then I ended up in an ambulance to, to hospital and um, they said, have you been tested for COVID? And I said, yeah, no problem. I was tested in, in Woi Woi Central Coast. And they said, where? And I told them where. And I said, no, they're not being tested it right. And um, I was like, what? Because apparently, and, and I've seen it so many times, um, you see it on the news, and not so much now because I think it's all come out, but all these people in their cars driving through and someone putting the old stick up around the nostril and coming out. And, um, and that was what they did to me in the mouth and up the nose. When I was in hospital... I, they shipped me into the COVID ward and, and that was insane, you know. Um, and then they came and gave me the proper test and that thing goes up your nostrils, right at the back of your, your, your mouth and it feels like it's touching your brain. It's just horrible. Um, and they put it around and I was like, oh, man, pulled it out and then did the mouth and then they did the second nostril. And then they were like, you know, um, there was a couple of other things that they wanted to to test, but because I was in the COVID war, they couldn't move me. And so, long story short, anyway, I don't have COVID. I've been tested twice. Um, had pneumonia. Just this is my first trip um, from the Central Coast to Sydney for your podcast, mate. I, I I was though just getting worried. I'm like, oh, I hope he doesn't have COVID because I'm sitting right next to you. No, but I'm um, good. You, you've obviously, you've obviously got your um, your goal at hand now for next April. Yes. Um, are you taking active steps to reach that goal? Like, what 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 is your like weekly routine look like now? Like, are are you doing things like meditation, yoga? Are you training? What 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 does your week look like these days? Well, because I was so sick with pneumonia and stuff, I, it's it's baby steps to get back to where I was. My my doctor's saying, you know, do something. It's literally at this stage, walking around the block with my dog. A few weeks ago, I couldn't do that. I could couldn't even walk around the block. Um, so. That um, and then just exercising. We're just doing a reno on our house at home. So I was digging trenches because we're laying the footings for, you know, and um, one day I did that and I was I slept for two days. The next day I, I worked for three hours in my garden and I was I slept for two days solid. So it's just getting back into it. So I'm not on the mats or anything like that, nothing exciting. Um, but slowly, I know, I know how to train people. Um, I've just got to put myself first for a change. Um, I've been chatting to Rachel Guy online who was, um, anyone that doesn't know Rachel, she was the original strength and conditioning coach in Winter Warrior. She used to work at my gym. She's got a huge following on Insta. She's a great strength coach. Um, and she trained me um, when I turned 40 because 
and got me in that shape. And I used to train her in MMA. So we she's in Dubai now, but we're going to do something online and she's going to write me some strength programs. And so it's, it's more about um, strength and conditioning for me rather than being on the mat because physically, you know, with my back injury and stuff, I can't do – I can't train myself hard in MMA anymore. My body just wouldn't do it. I, I can do it, um, you know, playing around, a little bit of pads and stuff, but to get where I need to be, I need to train hard. So that's going to be strength training. But – I'm on the path and, um, you know, I've, t- I've told people now, so I'm going to put updates on and, and I will put a picture of myself from last week, which I've taken a picture, and when I'm 50 and I'll have the comparison and I'm, I'm very um, set that it, it will happen. Now, starting with your coaching, obviously, mm. um, Wim to Warrior, uh, uh, as I spoke to you earlier today, um, you know, the, the story of the creation of Wim to Warrior has been out there for quite a while. Um, you've spoken about it many times, so I don't really want to touch on that. But I do want to touch on, you know, um, it beginning as a, a, a program to find one fighter, train him for six months and having him to a fight, to now what it's become now, which is mm. a totally different kind of program really, right? Because now it's more about, I guess, going back to what you were just saying about your health issues, it's about mm. changing people's lives. It's not sure. about making that one fighter. At what point did the program, I guess, switch from from finding a fighter to changing people's lives? Um, so ju- it was never about finding one fighter. It was about finding one person that I could get to a point where they could fight. Um, and, and that was purely about showing people that MMA, anyone could do MMA. That was the whole point of Winter Warriors. Take someone that you'd never think would be in an MMA gym, train them, show the transformation, and then they get to compete. Um, but it really, I think it really come, it, it became more about the transformation of, of people's lives rather than growing the sport. It's still both very important to me, but that became a real driving force for me. Probably after... The second series finale, I think. The first series finale was amazing. Um, but I changed the program up a little bit for the second one and um, and started to work on um, a bit of the mind space stuff, you know, strengthening the mind and, and doing, you know, a lot of the um, stuff that you guys went through with me, um, being the visualisation stuff. And I, I really started to see that that mental fortitude people were finding through the program. And that was like, wow. You know, it's always about teaching them martial arts and getting them to step in and showing people and, and ideally filling up MMA gyms around the world because they see this, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. And that's why I did it. But when I started to see the transformations that people were going through, not physical, um, that's amazing. Anyone can get physically fit, you know. Um, but it's the messages that people were sending me after the program of how it had changed their life, the life of their kids, um, the perception the kids have of them, um, you know, fathers doing it for their kids to show them anything's possible, young mums, single mums doing it for their daughter to say, you know, women should be empowered and look what your mum has done and, you know, and people that um, try to commit suicide, the darkest of dark, we've had them all, you know. Um, And when I really started to see that side of things, that's when I really started to think this is amazing and, we can really help a lot of people with this program, as well as growing the sport of mixed martial arts, which was the whole premise. Um, but that became my key driver. And, you know, and I still get messages now from people that finished the program a month ago, but people that finished it five years ago. I um, had one yesterday from a guy, he was our oldest guy in Belfast. Um, 
at the time, not anymore. Um, and he just reached out to me and just said, you know, just to give me an update. He saw my post and said, Coach, you know, thanks again. You know, know that you mean so much for all these people, but let you know this is still having a huge impact on my life. Um, and so that's really special to me. And that's, um, that is the key driver for the program. Now, I think that's what makes our program so special. Um, but yeah, it's, it's and and has it outdone your original expectations? I mean, obviously now you know you've probably got different goals that you want to achieve. But what what, what I say by that is, you say you always wanted to fill gyms around the world, but looking at some of the gyms that you have, whether it be you know SBG with John Kavanagh or or even TriStar, did you did you always think you were going to make it to those kind of like gyms? Um, you know, um, and yeah, like. Did it outdo your original expectations? Hundred percent, a thousand percent. I look. I was a fan of MMA since the day one. You know, I, I started training in in the mid nineties. So TriStar was like my fa- GSP was like my favorite athlete ever. Um, I remember coming in, him. I was following him online, and I've, I remember him coming into the UFC. Um, so to if someone had said to me, you know, eight years ago when I came up to Concept, this program will be in TriStar. It will be with John Kavanagh, SBG. You know, it will be in all these famous gyms, C, kickboxing. I mean, these, these, a lot of these gyms weren't around then. But to, for someone said to me, you'll be in the five biggest MMA gyms on the planet, um, working with the best coaches in the world. I would have never believed them in a million years. Um, I still pinch myself that these coaches are running my program. Um, it's, it's, um, it's something I'm hugely proud of. Um, but yes, it's, it's way bigger, and I couldn't have done it, any of it, without the team that we have at Wimp Tour anyway. I mean, end of the day, I'm a coach. I'm not a businessman. Um, I've never have been. I'm, I'm very creative. I have great ideas. Um, I have that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I've had my own businesses since I was 18. Um, but to grow a business, you need business people. You know, um, Kelly and Nick, have, they're, the, they're the real structure behind this, you know, and I was kind of feel guilty when I'm asked to go on podcasts and talk about Winter Warrior, it's amazing and people congratulate me, but I could never have done it without these guys and the people that have worked in the, for us now and previously, um, but most of all, the people that do the program as well. I always say to people, they thank me and I say, don't thank me, I thank you because without people signing up to do the program, there is no program. So um, it, is, it is something that I will always be proud of. It's something that... Um, I will always be able to look back and say that program. Um, and also, for me, I helped grow the sport of mixed martial arts, amateur level. And that's that was the whole point of doing it in the first place. And when you place job adverts uh, for Wimp to Warrior, is part of the, the whole process that they have to go through through the Wimp to Warrior program? Because I know that majority of the people that work for you or work with you, I should say, mm. um, They've, they've all done the program themselves. So is that actually a thing, like a part of the, uh, the, the job interview process? It, it was until about a year ago, you know, and, and it's um, – but we, you get to a point where you need specialist people. Um, and we, we have offices, you know, around the world now. We, we have people working for us in the UK and in Ireland and the US. We have a president of our, our company in the US, um, Scott Fiscomi. So – there's only so many things that you can do. And, and like Scott Fiscomi, for instance, he's been a martial artist for, for 20 years. You know, he can't go and do the program. He'd be too experienced. But um, it's important for us to p- that 
people understand what the program's about. That's the most important thing because um, we're, we're not out to become this huge blue chip company. We're about getting more people into sport of mixed martial arts, helping people transform their lives and, and putting money into the sector because there's so many gyms that we deal with now that people see these super gyms now and they think they must be raking it. Most gyms don't make money. They, they, people that own gyms do it because they love it. They love giving back to their local community. They love martial arts. And so it's, they want to do that for, their, for the rest of their life. It's nothing to do with money. So for us as a business to be able to pay that gym's rent for a year or more and pay their coaches for, by running our program, that to me is, is super special. And that's, that's really, you know, um, Nick Langton, who's the CEO, he came through the program and um, was the original investor and then he came on and left his high-powered job um, two, two and a half years ago and to, to help run and build the business. Um, you know, that's his passion. He's the real B2B, what they call, you know, business to business because he loves the idea of growing the business of MMA and monetizing it because it's, it's so hard to monetize a gym, especially if you if you want to run it as a proper mixed martial arts gym. It's, you know, it's, the sport's very big. There's lots of people watching the sport, but um, there's a lot of growth to do. And, you know, and that's why I went to Warriors and that's why IMAF and trying to get more people to recreational MMA, train for fitness, train for health. It's not about just pro fighting. You know, that's not what the sport is about. And having a, a, a massive uh, history of coaching yourself and then obviously being the head coach for the original few series, how hard was it to... Uh, I'm, I guess you didn't step back, but you, you changed your role, right? So sure. rather than being a head coach of series, you're now guess, a guest coach that travels to multiple series. But mm. how hard was that? And I only ask because sometimes, you know, when you see professional fighters and, and suddenly they, you know, they get released by the UFC or whatever, a part of their identity kind of gets lost as well did For you sure. did you have the same pr uh, problem like did did you feel that some of your identity of being this head coach uh you know left when when you kind of moved roles and and how did you deal with that 100 percent. and um i don't want to keep going back to it but that's part of this mental battle i've had you know um with my mental health for, for years because um when i injured my back I was told I could never do it again. And that's, it's always been my thing, you know. I opened my first gym in 1995 in London and it's always I've ever done. And it's always, I believe, I've ever been good at. I left school with no qualifications, learning difficulties. So I become a martial artist. And, you know, I was so afraid when I injured my back that what am I going to do now? Where's my identity gone? You know, it was the thing. I was this black belt martial artist, you know. I used to fight and teach and, and then it's gone. That's my identity. You're exactly right. And that's, I, I felt empty and that was a huge struggle for me. And then when I got to a point with um, Winter Warrior, um, it's kind of two-point. It's not because um, I just travelled, but I got to a point where my back, you know, I had, I had an operation. I've got disc replacements and bars and stuff in my back. Um, I knew that it, I was on a clock, you know. I'd get to a point where, you know, day-to-day uh, -day coaching just isn't, isn't um, I can't do it physically and I want to give people the best I can give them on the mat and I got to a point where I couldn't do that anymore so that was very hard for me um, but traveling to gyms and being the guest coach you know is fantastic but the biggest thing I miss is the connection you have with people that you train 
because when you guest coach you go to visit people it's you know people excited to see you and you train them and I love it but I'm so jealous of the coaches that are there on a day-to-day basis that have that connection and see people's journey because that's the thing I miss I miss seeing someone on day one and then what they do on the winter warrior program um, at the end of that and and knowing that you had a a real part of their journey that's gonna it will literally change their life and and being involved with that journey is something that that's the biggest part I miss I really do miss it and I miss it now and I miss it every day and um, you know I call myself the international head coach but you know realistically um, I, don't, I don't get to coach that much anymore and that, that's something that that does really bother me and it's something I, I still deal with daily. And I guess with all the series that have gone around the world, you, you're kind of privy to all of them, you know. Um, what are like maybe two or three of the most kind of inspirational stories that you've come across that really, you know, to this day s- stick with you? Sure. Um, and, and I guess for anyone sitting on the sidelines, sort of, you know, whether they want to do it or not, it, you know, is there there's something you can kind of say on, on, on that regards um, yeah. to kind of push them over the edge? I thought you could ask me... M- like one or two of my favourites. And I was oh, well, like, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's in the gyms and series, which I would never do. No, 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 oh, uh, not, uh, not at all, but yeah. I mean, you know. No, I understand. Like a strong story that's been motivational to me. Um, th- there's been a few. Um, there's one that always sticks in my mind because um, I got very emotional reading their letter out from this person once on the mats. And I, I, I did it for a specific reason. There was, we, it, I think it was like um, series five of si- in Sydney, um, and when when I put on the series, I wanted to give people the ultimate experience. That was me as a coach. I want to have given the best coaches. You know, I used to brought Jens Pulver over. You know, Mark Hunt, I'd, Richie. Um, um, my God, my brain. Walsh, Richie Walsh. Sorry, Rich. Um, I, I tried to get as many people involved because I wanted people people to not just think it as a training program, but a real experience. And that went with the finale as well. And I'd put on at Luna Park, you know, it's huge expense, huge stress. So um, that was, that, and I've lost the question now. What did you ask me? Uh, just like a couple of the questions. most I- yeah. I- inspirational so, stories. So coming up to the finale, um, it would cost so much money putting on a finale um, at Luna Park. And if there weren't enough tickets sold, you know, it's a massive problem. So this particular series, um, I was so stressed. It was a few weeks out and um, it was going to be a huge loss for the, for the finale. Um, so I went in and I was driving in um, and in the morning I used to wake up. I live on the Central Coast. I'd get up. My alarm would go up for 3 a.m. Um, I'd have a shower, breakfast, and then I'd drive in. Um, and just before I, I went, I checked my messages and there's a guy in Ireland – and I don't want to say his name. Um, he'll know who I'm talking about. He was on um, Series 2 or 3 in Dublin. Um, and he reached out to me um, before he started the program. And basically, he sent me a picture of himself. Um, and it was this, this white Irish kid who looked sort of 18, 19, really puffy, not a hair on his face, you know, obviously going through chemo. Um, and then he, he sent a picture of himself a year before. And he was this... Really good-looking, athletic kid, um, amazing hair and just fit and training in the gym. And you look at that picture and you think this kid's got his whole life in front of him. And then there's this picture and he said, you know, um, coach, um, I hope you don't mind me contacting you. Um, a friend of mine is doing the Winter Warrior program. I'm currently 
in hospital going through chemo. Um, I just want you to know that I've set myself a goal um, that I'm going to beat this cancer and I'm going to do the Wintroy program. Um, and that blew me away. Um, and, it, you know, it, there was a lot more context to the, to the email and the, and the message, which is personal to us. But um, the fact that he, he was using the motivation of doing the Wintroy program to really focus and beat the cancer, because I truly believe, and most people do, that you need to have a positive mindset um, when you're sick. You, it, sickness, stress, it brings sickness on. You know, cancer, so many cancers are caused by stress and anxiety and all this kind of stuff. So he really needed something to get him through, and, you know, and he put my program um, as his motivation. And that was hugely positive to me. And then he came out, he went through cancer, uh, through his chemo, came out, he did the next program, um, and I followed him. I went over to Dublin and met him just after the tryouts, um, and we got a picture taken and before and after, and um, we've, we've stayed in touch, and, you know, he's getting married. He got married, actually. He invited me to the wedding. I couldn't go, but his story is is so special to me because it's it went to Warrior, had a huge impact on him before he'd even stepped on the mats, and, you know, he says that, he might not be here if it wasn't for Winter Warrior. And so that letter, I I read that letter in the, the morning of, I got to the gym and I wanted to try and explain to the people um, on the series how special their finale needs to be and it will be something they never forget and they're privileged to be in this situation to train and they want all their friends and family to be there. So I, I read this letter out from... from um, this guy in Dublin, and and I got hugely emotional, and I, I struggled to read through it because it, it meant so much to me, and and what I was trying to impress on them is is this program the way I I got to feel about this program it's it's not about fitness but it's it's almost like a medicine for mental health it's it's allowing people to really focus and and change the way they live their life um, and. That particular one, I know I go on because I could talk about this guy forever. There's lots of tangents to go off about our relationship now. But he was a huge motivation for me and it's something I'm very proud of. Um, but, I mean, I've had people that message me and say, um, I'm on the program, I'm in this country. Um, before, two weeks out from the program, I brought the pot of pills or I've had a gun laying on the floor and I was going to commit suicide and I was living in... There's all these stories and... Um, they're all very special, and and I don't like picking one out, but that one to me is very special because it, it the impact it had on him before he even started the program. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, it is. It's a very privileged to be in the position and and people to to send these kind of messages to me. It means it means the world. Crazy. Yeah. It really is. Um, I guess we'll move on, uh, but before we do, just because we are still in that kind of COVID space. And since we're talking about Winter Warrior, I just want to quickly ask you on a personal note, what was harder, starting Winter Warrior and seeing your family every weekend? Because I know you were sleeping in the gym mm -hmm. um, or being in lockdown where, where you're with your family 24-7. Because I know like some people are going crazy when they're locked up in home. Which, which, which one's tougher for you? I love my family, my kids. They drive me crazy sometimes, but it's... This COVID thing has been really good for me. You know, we talked about it from the mental point point of view and just to refocus. But my wife, um, my wife Zoe, is amazing. We've been married for over twenty years now. If it wasn't for her, Winter Warrior wouldn't exist because she's been paying the mortgage for eight years. You know, 
I'm, I'm not this. People think, oh, you started Winter Warrior, you must have a private jet. No, <laughs> I earn more money doing personal training. You know, I do this because I love it. But my wife has, has been the, the, you know, bringing in the money each each time um, she cut short her maternity when we had kids during Winter Warrior to go back and to, to enable me to chase and follow my dream of this program. Um, and, but she, for the first time in, since Winter Warrior started, she's been able to work from home. Um, and to have, see her at home and spend time with the kids, because she'd leave home at 6 a.m., Monday to Friday, and she'd get home at 7. So I get up, get the kids ready, put them on the bus, feed them, out, work all day, visit gyms, come back, get the kids off the bus, feed them, shower them, get them back, bedtime stories, homework, and then my wife would walk through the door. I'd be exhausted, um, wouldn't really be in a, a mood to talk, and our relationship was always, we are kind of ships passing the night, but since this COVID thing, she works for Toyota in, in Sydney, she's been working from home, and she's, she worked harder at home than she does, but to see her and us to be a unit, a family for the first time ever, and spending time together has been amazing, so there's part of me that doesn't want it to, there is these restrictions to, to come off on a purely personal and, um, I guess, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, anyway, for me, it's, it's been great. I mean, it's, it's, it's a classic example, as they always say, for every successful man, there, there's an even stronger woman Absolutely. behind it, right? Yeah. So, um, so we'll, we'll move on now anyway to men's fitness. Mm. Um, you're obviously a writer for men's fitness. Um, how long have you been doing that for and what are some of your highlights? Um, so men's fitness, I got into men's fitness because um, the editor, Todd Coe, um, Cole, sorry, he used to train at my gym in Sydney. Um, so we got chatting and, and um, I used to train in MMA and we kind of got this friendship and, uh, and at the time there was no MMA content in men's fitness magazine and that was just general there was anything that made the papers in mma back then was negative you know this fight um the the big national papers hated having any content of mma and if it was it was a negative piece about human crop fighting and all this kind of stuff so um i was chatting to todd and i was trying to get him to have more content or have something on there so um at the time shannon pontin was um, did a q a and he's the coach um at the time for um biggest loser also trained at my gym good friends with shannon still now hey shannon um and i said to him look he was doing like a fitness one i said look can i have a, a column like that q a uh, people can write in and just ask questions about mma training and and what it can do and that's how it started and i pestered him um so i got this little column to start um and then um I w- we did a feature i did a big feature in there about mma um after we had our first ufc in australia um, and then that kind of relationship built from there. Um, and then the highlight for me um, was the Ronda Rousey um, cover. So up until then, there'd never been a woman on the cover of, of a men's fitness globally, not just in Australia. Um, and I had this idea of um, putting Ronda on the front cover. And I said, you know, it'd be great. It would be something that people talk about. Um, so I, I messaged Todd and I said, "Look, this is the idea. Ronda's coming over. It's good. The biggest UFC ever. She's fighting um, Holly Holmes in Melbourne. The biggest attendance. You know, it's gonna be huge, huge for Australia. Um, let's put Ronda on the front cover." And he was, like, "Oh, I don't know." So he had a panel of, of advisors. So they talked about it, and it took about a week to come back. And in the end, he said, "Let's do it." And I was like, "Right, this is it." So um, you'll know. I contacted you. I said, "Look." So we went to um, 
the hotel where she was staying and um, we interviewed her. We did videos. She did these amazing, amazing clips for social media um, and we had Wanda on the front cover and it went viral and there were media outlets all around the US and in Europe, you know, the New York Times, The Guardian, um, loads of online um, publications were contacting Men's Fitness saying, this is amazing, can you talk about it? So Men's Fitness were over the moon and that's kind of, then Todd was like, okay, you're now my MMA editor for Men's, for men's Fitness. So that's that was definitely a highlight. Um, but I've done some great, I've done interviews with Mark Hunt. Um, I've had Robert Whitaker on the front cover as well when he had his fight with um, Israel um, back in February. Was it February? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, it's it's not something that I do. I'm not particularly um, good at it because like, I left school with no qualifications. For me, to write an email, it takes me an hour because I go back and you know, have dyslexia and stuff. So, But um, my wife proofreads it for me. But the passion that I have for the sport comes across. Um, and so it's something I love doing. And um, I love going to the UFCs with accreditation and, and being on the front row and, and watching the fights and stuff. Um, I don't have it anymore because since I became president of IMAF in Australia, um, they said it's a bit of conflict, president, you know, and you're a journalist writing about the sport. So um, I have to be more neutral. But, yeah, it's, it's been great. And I'd still do stuff for them. Um, if there's something big coming up, I'll contact Cole, um, Todd and say, look, this is coming up. It's Australian MMA. I'd love to talk about it more. I've been pestering him to have something in there about IMAF and the Australian team for a while. So I'm going to have to, reminds me, I'm going to have to call him up. So if you're watching, you're going to get a call soon. Um, but yeah, look, it's, um, I, again, it's just a way of getting MMA content. It's that next level, the mainstream. People that read Men Fitness probably aren't training in an MMA gym. Not back then anyway. I'd like to think they are now. Um, so it was just a, another way of, of showing what this sport can do. And just going back to the Ronda one, you obviously went in there with, with a lot of nerves. Yeah. Um, was that more so because you kind of feel like a lot was riding on it because uh, Todd took a chance by featuring a female um, athlete on a men's, I guess, magazine? Um, or was it more so that it was Ronda Rousey? It was Ronda Rousey. You know, it's, I'm always, at the end of the day, I'm a fan of the sport. Um, what Ronda had done up to that point was amazing i mean she was the first woman to fight in the ufc the first ever fight first champion um and i'd followed her in strike force and uh, before that and i'd written about her as well a few times for other um uh, magazines and online stuff so i was a huge fan of ronda um and then to well you'll know i mean i was blushing pretty much the whole way through i mean it was a standard interview it was we it was in a hotel room and it was on her sofa and she was sitting on the sofa with her legs up under a blanket and I was sitting next to her and I was like, you know, and she's she's a beautiful woman and it's, I admire what she's done and, you know, she's, you know, my wife knows this. I mean, it's she's very attractive and um, she was very accommodating and, you know, I, there was, yeah, that was, look, I'm nervous even talking about it. Because uh, I know you laughed at the time. And I said to Rhonda at the time, am I blushing? And she was like, yep. Um, but yeah, that was really cool. And um, she was very sweet and very accommodating. Um, and like I say, it was a, it's a great thing to have Rhonda on the front cover and say that, you know, it's one of those things I'll be able to say that was me. And talking about MMA in the mainstream, do you, do you feel like we've reached that now? Um, obviously, we, we, we have made leaps and bounds, you know, uh, with UFC now with the ESPN deal and stuff like that. But even to the point, I think it was after the Tony-Justin um, uh, Gaethje fight 
I think they even ended up on Channel 10 News after that fight. So do you feel like we are mainstream now or do, do, do you feel like there's still a, a, a while to go or a way to go? Um, I think you've got to kind of separate what mainstream is. I think in terms of media, definitely, 100%. I think the fact that we've had um, a great ambassador for the sport in Robert Whitaker, you know, former champion and still competing, um, and he is a real ambassador for, for what we do. Um, and then um, Israel in, in New Zealand, you know, champion now. So it, it's because of the success of um, our region, Australasia, um, it's, it's kind of forced it into, into the media. But I, in terms of mainstream, um, for me, the sport isn't about pro fighting. You know, the, that's the pinnacle of, um, of the athletes. That's where the athletes go to earn a living. The sport is about the everyday people training and competing at amateur level or, or not even competing. And that, to me, isn't there where it needs to be at the moment. Uh, people still look at the sport and they, they see these athletes in the UFC and think, you know, I would never want to do that or I can't do that or that's too violent. But there's a whole other side of the sport um, at amateur level which is gives people so much, um, just like the, the Winter Warrior Programme. Um, and when people finish the Winter Warrior Programme, I don't want them to stop doing MMA. I want them to carry on and become martial artists and continue training. So, um, yeah, it's, I, it's not where I want it to be. Um, it's, every country is a little bit different. There's, I've got some big plans for Australia, now I'm the president here, um, and things that I want to achieve. Um, so, but we will get there. I think in the next probably two to three years, um, I'd like to think that we'd be a big participation country of the sport of MMA. So, and I guess that's where IMAF comes in now. So, you're the president. Um, when did IMAF originally sort of come about? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is the purpose of IMAF? Yep. And, and when did you join that team? So, IMAF's been around for sort of seven years now. They're basically, they're the governing body of mixed martial arts um, in the world. They are the governing body. Um, the UFC go through IMAF um, in lots of countries and they put on the events, they give, they put on um, the referees and every as, as a sanctioning body and a governing body. Um, but their main purpose is to, is to legitimise us as a sport. It's an amateur body. Um, um, and there's lots of things that they're doing for that. It's, um, you know, stuff I'll touch on in a minute actually, but... Their, their main purpose is to get us recognised globally as an amateur sport um, and then ultimately allow athletes to compete in the Olympics in the sport that they love of MMA, their chosen sport. Um, and there's no reason why that won't happen. Um, there are people that are trying to block it from happening and we can talk about that, but um, that's the main premise of, of IMAF. They're the governing body um, of our sport globally um, they have federations all around the world. I think there's uh, over 110 countries now with um, federations of under the IMAF. Um, I was asked to get involved. Um, I met um, Kerith Brown and, and Denzine White, who's the president and CEO in Vegas, a couple of years back. Um, we went out for dinner with John Kavanagh and, um, and, and Nick, Nick Langton, and we just got chatting, and um, I told him about the where Australia is and what I want to achieve and what I'm doing with Winter Warrior and they asked me to get involved in Australia. So I came on as the vice president um, and um, I put a lot of new things in. I was brought a lot of new 
vision and they saw the drive and the things I'd done with Victoria. And so um, I made a lot of changes and um, I was then voted in um, as the president in October, I think, or August last year, um, which is a huge honour. Um, and <laughs> it goes back to that time of how am I going to do this? My wife's like, you're not going to accept it. Are you? Do you, how are you going to fit this in? But you just, you kind of make it happen. But it, it gives me the opportunity now to really, I've been building a really solid team um, of coaches and, and administrators and, um, and we put, I put on my first event for IMAF, which was the Oceana, biggest one they've had. Um, and we've got a solid national team now. So, but I want to build grassroots. I want to monetize gyms. I want to get governance. So when someone competing as a mixed martial artist in Australia, as an amateur, they should be able to go anywhere around the country and, and compete under the same rule set. That doesn't happen at the moment, okay? They should be able to go to somewhere and know that um, the referees or the people that are looking after their safety are qualified. That doesn't happen at the moment. There are, there are some amazing referees and judges in Australia, but there's no governance um, on a federal level. So it's you go to here, you go to this rule set, you go up to Queensland, you know, it, there's no real governance there at all. There's no combat board. You come to New South Wales, it's, we're, not, we're so fractured as a sport. Um, so my, what I want to do is to get Australia recognised as an NSO, a national sporting organisation, here. That will eventually get funding for our federation that we can then uh, um, help um, pay for our, our athletes to go overseas and compete and stuff. Um, but also the other things we're doing is we're running coaching accreditation courses now, um, referee courses, timekeeper courses. So people, there's, there's a set standard. There's, so when a gym opens they can say you know all our coaches are recognized by the global body of mma there's a qualification there and there's not at the moment you know there's anyone can teach mma at the moment and that shouldn't be the case um people should be qualified through um they should understand how the body works they should know um, basic first aid they should know um health and safety but and and then how to coach and teach people because it's not just a case of i know how to do it so i can teach someone it's not there's lots of different ways of, of teaching people and, and basically instilling knowledge. Everyone's different. Everyone um, retains information differently. And there's a skill to coaching. Um, so we want to have a structure globally, um, a system where you can come through so an athlete can become a, a level one coach, which basically means you, you teach uh, as an assistant in classes and, and beginners. And then you have level two and level three, which goes up to um, elite athletes. And there's lots of sports science involved. And so... Our sport is as proper structure and governance, um, and that's throughout. And so, so is that going to be like a grading system, like you see, like in BJJ? Because um, the same thing there, you know, you train in BJJ, and once you get, I think, to purple belt, you start taking that sort of assistant mm -hmm. role in teaching some of the younger people and, and stuff like that. So, is it, is it fair to say it'll become something like that, where there'll be a, a grading system? Yes. For, yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and, and that that's happening now. So there's it's. Australia was the, the first country to launch it. I, I launched it here um, as, a, as a trial on a few gyms. Um, and and the, the grading system, so everyone calls it a belt system. People understand it more because it's a martial art. But we don't wear belts, you know. It's like jiu-jitsu where they have um, no gi. You can have a coloured rashi and stuff. But there's a system now in mixed martial arts that's, uh, that's evolved um, through amazing coaches around the world that you progress. So rather than, at the moment, the... 
the hard thing to keep people in MMA classes is if you're not fighting, what are you? What's your goals here? You know, you you've lost the weight. What do I want to do here? Um, and as a sport, um, we lose a lot of people in our sport to jiu-jitsu and to Muay Thai because people want to compete. People want to test themselves. And we need to be able to facilitate that. Um, and we need structure. And we need to have a system where it's fair when people compete. And in, in jiu-jitsu, for instance, you know, you compete against other belts of, you know, white belts, blue belts, etc. And that's the system we're bringing in. Um, so we've got this syllabus. We've got – there's an amazing app um, – Anyone can download it off the App Store, but you just you can't use it if you're not under a coach and stuff. But um, it has all the videos, all the syllabus, and you, the coaches can grade um, and give students feedback within a class scenario. He can be there on his phone watching someone running takedowns, and he can look at them and go and score that takedown. Um, and rather than interrupting the class, saying, stop, Johnny, you're, that was great, um, really good, and then everyone's... He, after the class, Johnny looks at his, his app... Training class, I was there. Our coach watched me. He's given me this score on all these techniques. Uh, this one I need to work on. So it's direct feedback. Um, so there's a lot of technology now in our sport, and this app is one of those things. So we've launched this system um, as a trial. Um, there's been part of the whole Olympic push. There's been um, a coaching commission um, started. It was, it was um, introduced late last year. Um, there, there's... Um, there's all sorts of commissions you need as part of the Olympic progression and being recognised as a sport. And one of them is a coaching commission. And there's seven coaches from all around the world. I'm on that coaching committee. I was honoured to be asked to be the chairman. And we're actually fine-tuning that syllabus at the moment. So it's going to be there's going to be a second phase, a relaunch. Um, so we run it for six months or a year. This didn't work. That doesn't work. But the beauty with MMA is it evolves constantly. There's always new techniques coming out. There's always new systems of training. So it's not. I came through traditional martial arts back in the day, and it's almost like a the bar. This is what you train. This is how you throw a punch. This is your kick. This is your block, and you learn that. That's your black belt syllabus, and there's no there's no evolution. Whereas MMA is constantly evolving. So the beauty thing with this system is we've got this commission and the coaches talk and they get feedback and every year we tweak things and it just changes it live on the app so the techniques switch around if need be or replace. So it's it's a really exciting um, opportunity for coaches to get involved and students and there's a progression system now, people to help people motivate to to train and, and, and set goals if they don't want to compete. And, and for the athlete side of things, is it just on a national level or is it on a state level? Like, how, how does it work? Like, obviously, you had the Worlds um, where, where they compete. But, yep. like, how, how do you form that national team? Is it a matter of, you know, having state competitions and then the winners progress to a national team? Or is it tryouts in each state? How, how, how does that work? How, how, like, how would I, not myself, but how would somebody get yep. into, say, the national team? So, when I got involved with IMF... <coughs> So 18 months ago, the first thing I did was um, start the coaching courses, but then I, I, um, I brought in tryouts, so state tryouts for our national team. Um, and, and it went really well, and, and that's how our team went to the Worlds last year. Everyone came through tryouts. So basically, but, you know, there's a lot of people that fall through the gaps there. You know, if you, we do a tryout in Queensland, Queensland's this huge state, and there's gyms all over. We, we do the tryouts in Brisbane. There'd be athletes that don't hear about it. So, you know, there's... Um, a lot of it is contacting gyms and coaches and 
people hearing about it, coaches contact us. There's a registration on our on our website, which is imatha.org. Um, you can go in there and register your interest, and we can send you information. But basically, we're just we're looking for not just athletes that are ready for the worlds, but we want athletes that we can talk to their coaches and and really work with them and bring them up over the next three, four, five years. You can compete in in IMAF at, from the age of twelve. Very different rules from adults. You know, there's no headshots until you get eighteen. There's it's very restricted, but we want kids to come through and have this safe pathway. Um, as a mixed martial artist, it's not about becoming a prof- professional fighter. 0.1% of people that do our sport will become pro. Is We should be able to provide, you know, recreational training. And then if they want to compete, you know, there's there's state competitions where they can go in, it's amateur rules, you know, very, very safe, and, and have that experience of competing. And, and for me, the most important thing is learning how to lose, um, to, to build confidence and come back and, and adversity so that's something that i'm very passionate about and we're really pushing and 2020 um not only we're going to have a really big national team for the world but um i want to have state competitions and and i want it's a whole another conversation but i want mma to come out of the cage and onto open mat as well amateur level i think there needs to be a progression i think the first time you compete in mixed martial arts shouldn't be in a cage it just shouldn't be especially kids um there needs to be a progression. They need to do mat-based competitions um, and then it builds up and you get to a point where you've got this amount of experience and then you go into the cage and then you still are under restricted um, rules and you build yourself up. You know, it, you look at any other sport, you don't just go straight and play in a stadium. You Five-a-side football and then, you know, and go-kart kids don't get into a Formula 1 car. They start go-karting and then they progress to Formula 3, Formula 2. This is, for us, to be a proper sport, we need this kind of system of, of progression. And these are all the things that we're working on. And I guess, as you said, it's not about getting them to the pros, but for some people it is kind of that key to the pros because I saw that uh, yeah. one of your recent champions signed with Bellator, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's look, there's, there's many athletes in the UFC at the moment and Bellator and other big pros that have come through IMAF. And um, John Kavanaugh said the other day, in five years' time, every athlete that signs to these big organisations will come through IMAF, you know, because you back in the day, you know, there was no amateur MMA. When I come to Australia, there was no amateur MMA. It was it was semi-pro or pro, and it was pretty much the same rules. There's no structure of of um, continual learning and evolving as a as an athlete. Um, but this this system. We've got guys coming through that have 30, 40 amateur fights. It's like boxing, you know, but you can't, you need to be able to look after those athletes. They need to be proper governance for those athletes. So at the end of their amateur career, if they want to turn pro, they're not broken, you know. They haven't gone down the pathway of taking PDs and all this kind of stuff because IMAF completely govern all this kind of stuff. You go to the Worlds, look, if you're a promoter um, and you want to sign, there's two kids, two let's say, two 20-year-olds, okay? Um, one's been competing on the, the national level um, around, let's say, in Australia. They've been competing and, you know, he's got a good record. But then one's come through the IMAF system and he's been to the world. He might not have won the Worlds. He might have got silver or bronze. But at the World Championships, these athletes fight five days in a row. Five days in a row. 
So they get there, they weigh in, and they have to weigh in every single day, every morning, make weight, so there's no weight cutting. You know, these kids, they weigh in the morning, and then they get on the bus, and then they go, and then they compete. And if they get through, they go back, hydrate, eat. Next morning, they get up, they have to make weight again. You talk about a lot of athletes, they say the hardest thing about camp is making weight. These athletes do it five days in a row, and they compete five days in a row. So you look at these two kids... Similar similar records. This one's been on a national level, you know, competing against really... And this one's been competing with the best in the world and has fought five days in a row, made weight. This kid's going to be a much better bet. This kid's never going to back out of a fight if he's, he's just going to be tough and he knows how to make weight and he's had that structure. And that's why so many of these promotions... Now, you go to the Worlds, there's scouts there for the UFC. You know, there's Bellator all the time and if you make if you win the worlds you're going to get several contracts offered to you so it's it's an amazing pathway and that's why the UFC are one of our biggest sponsors and and they pay for a um, they they give a lot of money to our federation to help us do all the things we need to do so um yeah we just need to get more people behind it and talking about the worlds how lucky were you to squeeze one in just before this lockdown oh i know yeah and and um any idea of when we'll see the next Worlds or, or is it going to become like a national thing bef- mm. until they start opening borders sure. or, or what, what's the kind of plan with, with IMAF like heading, heading mm. forward? So uh, the Oceana, which was in on the Gold Coast um, early uh, March, wasn't the Worlds. It was our regional international. So the way that um, IMAF work is they have um, – every region has their own international. So you get fighters come from all around the world because they want to compete um, and – they want their their um, their rankings to go up, um, but that's a regional one. So the Oceana, which happens every year, and it's the first um, event of the year. It's early March, and then you have then it goes around the world. You have the Asians, the 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 Americas, and the Europeans, and and so on. So, um, but yeah, we squeezed one in. We squeezed ours in just before the COVID just went ballistic and all the planes shut down and there was no international travel so it looks like ours so the world's is is going to be in november um and we're training at the moment you know i've i've brought in some new coaches and and i announced um that brian ebersole probably the most decorated and experienced athlete mma coach in australia is now the head coach for our, our, our team as well which is really i feel very blessed um and he's a great guy but we're we're putting together a team and we've got our trials coming up we're announcing dates soon as if the worlds are going to happen we're telling ourselves because you can't train and then hope you have to tell these athletes this is the date and i believe the worlds will happen i don't think every nation will be there because some nations if they're if there's a problem with covid at the time and they you know they go backwards they might get banned from travel so the worlds will happen um all the other internationals haven't happened. Like the Europeans is massive. Um, that's that was a, a you know it's, it is what it is. But it looks like the Oceania will be the next one. Which so the the Oceania will be the only um, event within a twelve month period, um, which is a shame. But it's also it, which will be in New Zealand. But um, if for whatever reason, if something really bad happens and we go backwards, the worlds don't happen. Then I've spoken to our guys in New Zealand and we're going to put on an event because we've 
is Australia, New Zealand. We're we're above the world in terms of you know the whole COVID thing. So we will have an event regardless. So our athletes, if the worlds don't happen, we're going to take them to New Zealand. We'll have an international, and they still have something to train for, and um, and you know and get their their points and and have a bit of a run out and have an event regardless. All right, and I guess before we start wrapping up, um, obviously you're sitting in front of the MMA as a sport. Yeah. Um, I saw a campaign going on or, or, or a petition going on at the moment. Um, would you like to talk a little sure. bit about that? And also, I, I guess my question on that, um, because you always see these petitions going wrong, like, is it actually valid? Like, what are the importance of people actually signing these things? Because sometimes I'm like, do, you know, are these signatures actually being heard? Like, mm. um, so yeah, if you can just... Sure. It, 100%. It's every signature counts. Um so IMAP is based in the UK um, and to get in front of, I don't know all the ins and outs, but to get in front of like, for instance, a sports minister, um, to, to get um, an audience with these people, you have to have a petition of over 100,000. If you have over 100,000 people sign a petition, then the doors open and you can then speak to the people relevant to your cause. So yes, 100%, every single signature um, helps. All of my social media, if anyone goes on, or go into IMAF website or IMAFA. Um, it literally takes 10 seconds. It goes in, you write your name, click, accept, and it's basically saying that you believe um, MMA should be recognised as a sport. So that campaign is very, very important. Um, so please, anyone watching this, please, if you if you like MMA or you want to see us, or if you love MMA, just, just go on it and just sign it. And share the graphics as well, please. But, yeah, it's... There's a, there's a lot of people that don't want to see MMA in the Olympics, for instance. And what we're trying to do is, is the pathway. There's, there's things you have to go through, processes of, of recognition to get to the Olympics. And there's a, in the Olympics, they have categories, you know, and there's a combat sports category. Um, and if a new one comes in, one has to go out. So with MMA, because it's so popular as, as a professional sport and you know everyone kind of knows the UFC globally there's a lot of worried people in the sport in co- other combat sports that have that um that um, position in the Olympics or um they could get it the following Olympics or they're, they're in the, the the conversation um you know boxing being one judo is a huge one um they don't want MMA in the Olympics um, so there's a huge pushback and these are people that have been around and have a lot of influence so there's this continual battle um, with our team at IMAF in UK and they're doing an amazing job um, and there's court battles etc to, to get people to listen because there's so much infrastructure going into our sport now um, we've ticked every box and some to to be where we need to be to be in the discussion um, and they're coming back with all these ridiculous excuses um so it's a process it will happen but the more people we get to sign on mma is a sport um and hashtag it as well um please for me um please sign it because it's super important because without this if we if we get recognized as sport governance has to be there you know it's infrastructure so the athletes get recognized you know you're you're working in a particular sport you know that's when you know there more money comes into sport because sponsors come in I talk to sponsors all the time trying to get people to sponsor our national team. These kids give up. People don't know this, but not a single person I'm after gets paid. You know, I do this job for, for nothing. We pay our own flights. We pay our own accommodation. These athletes do GoFundMe site. 
pages it's amateur sport but let's give them something let's help these kids because they're not on the streets you know they're learning martial arts they're becoming really fantastic athletes and ambassadors you know they're putting the green and gold on for god's sake we need to put some money into it but when you talk to these companies if you're not an nso you know they're like well it's, it's an excuse for them to say no so it's it, there's a lot of passionate people that are pushing hard but we need people to get behind it and it takes seconds all right, and uh, just before we do go, I just want to bring up the fights that we've had, obviously, um, in the past, I guess, months since the UFC's back. Yeah. I just want to bring up a couple of fights, which is, obviously, I just want to get your take on from a coach's perspective. Sure. Um, the first two fights I'll, I'll kind of bring up is Anthony Smith um, and Max's fight and, and how you feel about, you know, cornering um when's the right time to kind of throw in the towel and and i only say that because i the weird thing that i've kind of realized is in mma i find that a lot of coaches aren't throwing in the towel um or not as quickly as you would for instance see in boxing right um yet i find that taking a loss on your boxing record is a lot worse than taking a loss in your MMA record, sure. right to bounce back. So I was just wondering, like, just wanting to a get your your take mm. on those two fights. Do you sure. do you think they should have been called, or, or how would you feel if one of your fighters, sure. um, I mean, in the Anthony Smith fight, it was losing teeth and, and things like mm. that, and in the Max's fight, it was about um, you know him sitting on the stool, basically, I guess, not begging, but like telling his coach to call it um, yeah. multiple times. Um, yeah, what's what's your take on that? I mean, firstly, it's a very valid point about boxing and MMA. Um, you can lose an MMA and it's it's kind of expected. It's, a, it's how you evolve, it's how you get better. In boxing, it really hurts your career. But people do throw the towel in a little bit more in boxing, but there's nowhere to hide in boxing. If you're an athlete in boxing, someone's trying to rip your head off and all you can do is cover up or throw back. So there's nowhere you can smother the person and get your breath back and recover. Um, you know, you can get concussed and they stand you up, do an out count, eight count and you're back in again. It's, it's, it's a whole different game. MMA, you can wrap someone up, take them down or lean on the fence and you can recover. And so there's times where you think a fighter can be out, but he can recover. There's ways of doing it. And that's a lot of things as a coach you talk about. You know, there, there's safe places, you know, rest, breathe, tie them up if you if you get rocked. So it's different. It's, it's very hard to compare the the two sports that way. Um, but in terms of the way I personally look at it is um, you can't, it's so hard to to talk about a particular case because coaches have a, a good coach will have a, a long and very intimate relationship with it, with their athlete, you know, um, and they know that athlete inside and out and they've seen them in the gym go through real tough times or previous fights and they know if that person that individual can get through the other side or not so the coach is in a position where we can't really it's very hard for us to go oh they should have stopped it because we don't know what's happened before we don't know if the athlete said don't stop this I've got a plan I'm gonna look really tired and I'll wrap them up and I'm gonna drag them into deep water which a lot of fighters do they lose the first three rounds and then they win laid on and that's just the way they train and that's their kind of um that's what they do in fights and coaches know that um but at the end of the day it's not the coach's job i don't believe it's the coach's job to 
to throw the towel in. It's the job of the person that's looking after those two athletes, the only person in there, which is the referee. That referee is... And look, referees get stick sometimes for um, stopping fights too early or stopping fights too late. But that's their job. They're assessing that fighter on the way they're responding, the way they're moving, the way their eyes look. Um, and it's their job to say, stop or continue. Um, and we need to, if we take that power away from the, the refs, it's, you know, it's, it, it becomes a grey area. So um, it's some, from a, a, a fan's point of view, you can look and go, that man, that coach should have thrown a towel in. And look, I've coached probably, I've cornered hundreds of, of amateur fights and, um, and I've only thrown in the town once. And that was, um, that was Wimp to Warrior. That was the first series of Wimp to Warrior. Um, one of the girls um, didn't have a match-up, and I brought someone in from Perth um, who, was, who agreed to, to do the fight, but she was way more experienced. And it got to a point where she was just getting lit up, and she'd had the experience, and there was no need for her to continue on to I through the town. But that's, it's very hard for a coach to do that because you're kind of telling your athlete you've given up we don't believe they have it in them to to continue, um, which is that's something that, from a relationship point of view, it's going to take some time to for that to to work out. And the athlete might go, you know, you don't trust me, you don't believe in me. I'm going to go somewhere else, you know. And that's not an excuse. I'm not saying coaches shouldn't throw the towel in because they're scared of losing their athlete. The coach's job is always has the best intention. It's all about the athlete. That's what it is. But I think it's not the job of the coach. And I guess that makes sense for Max's fight because it was just a, a case of Max just, I guess, felt mentally he was out of the fight. Sure. His coach was trying to, you know, egg him on to get back into the fight. Mm. With Anthony, uh, I mean, he he won that first round, but then he literally dropped the remaining rounds. And, yep. and, and most will argue he even dropped them 10 eights. Like, they... You know, he was taking a beating. He yep. was picking up teeth off the ground, handing him to the ref, and the ref was putting yep. him in the pocket. Like, it was just to a point where, I don't know, me personally, I, I, I think whether was the ref or whether the corner should have jumped mm. in, that that fight went on way longer than it really should have or needed to. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a real extreme. And, you know, I guess to have this conversation, we need these things to happen. But it's, it's so hard, and this is what I mean. It's, it's really – if I was coaching, I probably would have thrown a towel in. You know, if I don't think my guy's in there and he's going to take damage, then I personally would. But I think it's very hard for, for people to sit and watch it on TV and say, he should have done that. Because you don't have the relationship with the athlete. You don't know what they've been through before to get to this point. You don't know what they have in them. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. And I, and I think it should be more on the referee. They should be... If someone's losing teeth and they're not responding... It should be stopped, and it's the referee's job to stop that fight. That's their sole purpose in as a referee is to look after the athletes. That's it. You know, they don't care about who wins, who loses. Their job is to make sure that those two athletes stay healthy. And then, um, I guess, good coaching, and then there's the um, alternative coaching, which um, is the Diego Sanchez fight. Mm where he brought a, um, I don't even know what it was, a spiritual coaching or, or something mm. like that. And then I guess last weekend with Mike Perry just bringing in his girlfriend. Um, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts of that? Like how important is it to have a good corner or do you, do you find that, uh, I guess in Mike Perry's, he's like, look, I do all the work. I, I'm the one in there. I don't need someone telling me what to do. Um, 
how do you find on those kind of stances? Like, do you need a good corner? Is it valid to have a good corner? Or, or do you feel as well that a lot of the work has been done, so theoretically they can go out there and, and, and I guess, just do what they want to do? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, you've, you've been there. You've done the walk. You've, you had a real hard start to your fight. It's coaching, and especially in a, in a corner, it's not about instruction. It's about letting the athlete know that you're there a lot of the time. And if you go in knowing your coach is there behind you and it's the person that's trained you and you feel comfortable with and you know they've got your back, and if you get into deep water, you can. there's someone there that's going to help you. That's, it's, it's more of a mental thing really, to, to know that you've got a really good caring coaching um, team around you that is there in the corner experiencing it with you. And if that's, if Mike Perry, I know for a fact Mike Perry hasn't got a team at the moment, he's between gyms and stuff, that's why his girlfriend's there. If he was fighting for the title, there's no way his girlfriend's going to be there telling him what to do. But he felt comfortable that he was at a point where maybe he thought that he was super confident with that fight he didn't have anyone else and he wanted someone there that would give him that comfort you know and someone that he wants to see and to he would calm down between rounds and a lot of the time that's all you need is a corner is to have that relationship tell them to breathe you know and then if there's something you've picked up if you give them too much information they're not listening you know it's got to be simple calm them breathe you're doing great you know pack them up give them a bit of a um, pep talk if you need to, you got this, and send him out. That's it. I guess it's also, I mean, he made a point because he watched one of the earlier fights and he said, you know, like one of the corners was giving their fighters a real hard time because they weren't in the fight and, mm. and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, as a coach, you should be picking up your fighter regardless. You yep. should pick him up. Where, you know, a lot of the times I've even said, like, I would rather the coach be honest because I, I also find it really weird. I mean, going back to Ronda Rousey, I, I found there, there was, uh, I think it was even the Holly Home fight where, mm. you know, the coach is sitting in the corner going, you're doing you do, great, yeah, where, where obviously you weren't. So, yeah. and I guess it goes back to your original point, each coach needs to have that, that, in-depth relationship because I think some fighters, they, they just want to be prepped up regardless sure. of the situation. Yeah. And then other fighters probably respect that honest opinion a little bit more. Yeah. And, and I think, again, it's, it's the coach knows what the athlete needs. You know, if you've got an amateur fight, fighter who's really inexperienced, they've never been in deep water before and they're losing, but you want them to have that experience and you want them to get through it. You know, the fighter, the coach might say, you, you're doing it, you're doing it because they need to know. If you tell you you're losing this, you know, you've, you've got no chance of winning, just hang in there. That might kill that person and the fight's over. But you'd expect someone that's fighting for a UFC title to be able to take on constructive criticism and know and be told the truth. To be at that level, to be told that you're doing really well when you're not, that's bullshit. You know, you, you need to say, you know, move your head, you know, use your distance or whatever. Something needs to change. And as a coach, you have to give them a tool to make a change. And um, most coaches, you go in there with a solid game plan. If this happens, we're going to switch it to this. And it's, it's just a case of reminding them, okay, we're not doing so well, we need to wrap them up and take them down. You know? And it's got to be as simple as that. The, the coaching needs to be done before the fight. You know, the thing that I always tell with Wintoria, with coaches, is especially for their first fight, you see people, coaches out the back and they're teaching them or critiquing their punches before they walk out. That's the worst thing you can do. They're going to go out, oh, my, my cross isn't, it's not working. You tell them they have the hardest strike ever. They hit the pad, my hand's going to break. You know, you're ready. 
All you should be doing is filling that person with confidence. You got this. I'm here. Go and do it. That's it. Critiquing someone out the back before they go out is the worst thing you can do. But you've got to, again, it's a relationship you have with the athlete. You know what they can and can't take. And that's why it's so important for someone that's cornering. You can't just come in and corner someone. It's, um, even if you know that, that guy, it's very hard to corner someone when you, even if you haven't been out the back with them warming up because you don't know how much they warm up. Were they, were they stressing out about something? You, know, you need to have that whole journey with that person. Sometimes you can't do it, but the journey of arriving, weighing in and being out the back, making weight, warming that person up, seeing how they're feeling and then assessing from that point, I need to perk them up a little bit or I need to bring them down a little bit. All these things, it's a process. And, and then going, it's so long story short, it's very important to have good coaches in your corner. I've had a situation where I had no corner. Um, my first pro fight and um, my coach was fighting through my, my coach and corner was two fights previous and he was so bashed up he couldn't come out so I had his dad and and they I had no relationship I, it was terrible but that's an experience that I've really embraced because as a coach now I know what not to do and and I think that's really important um, coaches learn from their own mistakes and then you try and teach and, and instill better knowledge and 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 um, systems so they don't make the mistakes you make well there you have it well, I do really appreciate your opinion on that. Uh, we will wrap it up now, um, but I'll give you a final chance uh, just to obviously let people know how they can contact you, whether it's for a personal uh, level, um, whether they want to look into signing up for the Winter Warrior program, yep. um, and how they can contact you for, I guess, the IMAF component as well, whether it is sure. like for trying out for the national team or... or whatnot, or even for the, as you say, the coaching programs. Yep. Um, so, yeah, if you can just let... Let us know how people can sure. reach out to you. So um, Winter Warrior is just winterwarrior.com. Um, our website's on there. It, it, it um, has all the gyms that run our program around the world, so you can just look up your local gym if you're looking to do it. All the information's on there. There's loads of videos and testimonials. Um, there's lots of stuff on social media. Our Facebook page has got loads of videos. Um, IMAF in Australia. So our website is IMAFA, so I-M-M-A-F-A.org. Um, you can go on there. That's all our news, our events. Um, and um, also our Facebook page as well. So, um, yeah, but so if you want to reach out to me, it's just Richie Cranny on Facebook and, and, and Instagram as well. But um, please, if you're watching this, take two seconds to go on um, and just sign a petition. Go on my social media or just go on IMAF's website, imath.org, and just sign it for, for the sake of our sport and the athletes and, and uh, the longevity. Well, there we have it. Um, I, as I always say, I appreciate the time um, that you've come in and, and, and had a chat. I think we've covered a lot of areas of, of the sport and the, the progression. And I look forward to getting you in once again once the, um, I guess, the borders or the COVID finishes and, and we'll get you in for another chat for any other updates. But until then, that is it. I'm away. I'm away.